That era in which the people who ran newsrooms were highly competitive, creative producers, journalists, in which they had oversight of the money and the finances, those days are gone. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, January 13th, and today Dylan Byers joins me to talk about a major shakeup at the top of NBC News and The Today Show. Dylan also has the scoop on more programming changes at CNN as the cable network positions itself for the future. And later, Tina Wynn and Ben Landy discuss Kevin McCarthy's secret backroom deal-making to secure his position as speaker. Tina digs into what McCarthy really promised the MAGA holdouts to get them to cave, and if he will come to regret it. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode, Powers That Be. Happy Friday, everybody. I'm joined by Dylan Byers, who's got some big news about TV news, as usual. How are you doing, Dylan? I'm doing great, Peter. How are you doing? It's just always great to see you on a Friday. (laughs) Dylan, you broke by a few moments on Twitter, which sometimes happen when you have a scoop. You kind of, you tweet about it and then it gets everywhere a few minutes later. But, you know, credit where credit's due. Uh, that there is a shakeup in CNN's daytime programming. And I do want to talk about that because it does tell us some things about where the network is going. But first, I want to ask you about some big news at NBC News, which is that Noah Oppenheim, who is the president of all of NBC News and also the Today Show, is leaving the network. You know, this comes after the Today Show ratings have declined in recent years. You know, the network has tried to reshuffle talent, but it's just clear that both structurally TV viewership is changing and, you know, the model isn't the same as it once was. Why is he leaving? Is he leaving on his own volition or was he pushed out? He's leaving of his own volition. There's a running theme whenever uh, I write about television and the television news business, which is that it, it is an incredibly depressing and not fun place to be by virtue of the fact that the business is in decline. As we reported back at the beginning of December, Noah Oppenheim had been loose in the saddle for a very long time. He was initially passed over for the chairman role that Andy Lack once had for Cesar Conde, who is now the sort of head of the NBC News, MSNBC, CNBC. The reason he was passed over for that role is because the nature of the business is changing. Those are roles that are no longer populated by executive producers who think of themselves as journalists. Those are roles populated by McKinsey, Wharton types, of which Cesar Conde has won. And they judge the business not based off of the editorial product so much as the P&L and the advertising revenue. And that is not exactly the business that Noah Oppenheim wants to be in. In his case, he has uh, history making movies in Hollywood. He's going to going to go back into making movies in Hollywood. That's a much more fun place to be for him. This is the sort of funny thing, which is that he's actually not really being replaced. I think a casual reader of of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal might look and say, oh, he's being replaced by Rebecca Blumenstein of the New York Times, formerly of the Wall Street Journal. That's kind of funny because she doesn't have any experience in television. As a matter of fact, what really happened here is that Caesar Conde promoted himself 
and split Noah Oppenheim's role into three different roles with one person overseeing the Today Show, one person overseeing the NBC News streaming service and nightly news, and then Rebecca Blumenstein from the New York Times coming in to oversee news gathering and sort of the newsroom management, which is is actually something she might be very qualified for despite having no experience in the television business. Long story short, it is yet another sign of what we've been talking about, which is that the business interests of broadcast news are really asserting power over the sort of editorial interest. That era in which the people who ran newsrooms were highly competitive, creative producers, journalists, in which they had oversight of the money and the finances, those days are gone. And now the business is being effectively managed through decline and they are trying to realize as much revenue through as many different revenue streams as they can. In the case of NBC News, its future is not... You think about the history of NBC News, it is the house of Brinkley and Brokaw and Brian Williams and Tim Russert. The moves that Cesar Conde made this week are a sign that he is betting the future more on the lifestyle business that is the Today Show, the streaming business, and, and what advertising potential there is there. NBC News is no longer sort of this coherent unit built around a television broadcast. It is sort of all of these myriad businesses that make up what Conde likes to call the omni-channel future of NBC. And that might be smart from a business perspective, but it is not not necessarily romantic in the eyes of so many NBC News veterans who still sort of live in a world where TV comes first. You said something twice in our conversation a few moments ago which is that Rebecca Blumenstein, deputy managing editor at the New York Times, doesn't have any TV news experience. Illustrious print career, obviously a serious journalist. That's an important statement to make. And even the Times made it in their piece announcing this. I have witnessed and lived through, (laughs) at CNN at least, and also watching TV networks from afar, print people come into TV, either as talent, digital reporters perhaps, and as executives. And it is a fundamentally different skill set. On the reporter side of things, they're just, as much as CNN and NBC and and, uh, CBS have evolved their digital product, the print newsroom DNA, whatever that is, does not exist in TV news. TV is about at the end of the day, ratings and making money. Um, That doesn't mean you totally compromise your journalism. I wish for the best of luck. I've just seen the challenges of people making the transition from print digital to television. And sometimes it can be a rocky road. If we have learned anything from the 16 months that you and I have been talking about the television news business, and I would say any news business, if there is one through line here, it is that leadership is critical to the functioning of an organization. Critical. What Cesar Conde has done in elevating himself and eliminating the NBC News president position is he has effectively left people without a leader other than himself, but he has no editorial experience, nor does he have any desire to be an editorial leader. And so if you are part of the Today Show, you know where to go. You can go to the person who's running the Today Show, Libby Leist. If you are part of the streaming service, you know where to go. You can go to Janelle Rodriguez. But if you exist anywhere else in the NBC 
news universe and you are trying to solve a problem, Rebecca Blumenstein, for all her talents, and she is a very well-respected and talented newsroom manager, but you were going to go to someone who has zero experience in television. And by the way, she's going to be on a level with the folks on the streaming service and the folks at the Today Show. And so she's not even going to have total control to, you know, make the final decision or, or pull the trigger, you know, on a hard call. It would create, if I were someone who had been at the network for a long time, like uh, whether it's an Andrea Mitchell or a Savannah Guthrie or a Craig Melvin, like, I would be really confused and anxious about what's going to happen when push comes to shove on those really hard calls. Okay, Dylan, I want to ask you about some changes at CNN that are happening. You broke this this story. Chris Licht has obviously revamped the morning show. This is an ongoing process to reorient CNN away from the Zucker years. What is he doing in that 9 to 5 p.m. window? He's about 9 or 10 months into the job now. And he did make a move in the mornings, which is the thesis is still waiting to be borne out in terms of whether or not that will work but it has yet to sort of revolutionize the the morning news space. He has not made any real significant lasting moves in primetime, and the 9 p.m. hour remains a question mark. He has, however, been investing himself on this day-side question. And what it is going to be, as is so often the case in the television news business now, is a sort of rearranging of the existing talent, hoping that somehow if you just put people in different places, you might change the outcome of the game. I'm not sure that's going to work. But what this looks like is he is more or less turning Dayside into three-hour segments, co-hosted in each case by three hosts. So in the mornings from 9 to noon, you're going to have John Berman, Kate Boldwan, and Sarah Seidner. From 1 p.m. to 4 p.m., you're going to have Jim Shuto, Boris Sanchez, and Brianna Keeler. In the middle at noon, for the moment, that will continue to be hosted by John King. My understanding, I believe that role will eventually go to Dana Bash. All of these people are great. They're talented. They're fine. None of them represent a major change for CNN because, of course, they've all been there for a very long time. The big question mark to me here is if there's one difference that Chris Licht, the head of CNN, is promising, he's saying that these shows are going to have a more kinetic energy and that presumably that means that instead of sitting down, For those three hours, those people will be standing up and they will be moving around and maybe there will be some magic walls and some boards. I don't know if you can force kinetic energy onto a news program. I think the news usually governs, you know, (laughs) governs the energy of programming. I think that after 10 months with very limited changes, there is a lot of reason for skepticism. It is worth noting that this decision is being made in part, as so many decisions at CNN are these days, in order to save costs. Instead of having hour-long programs, turning it into three-hour programs, having multiple, you know, multiple hosts for these things, you cut down some of the production costs associated with these things by stretching it out and trying to do longer hours based off of one production unit. But I don't really understand how this is going to change CNN's fortunes from a ratings perspective on day side, I also don't understand why, again, almost a year in, he hasn't put any of his energy into prime time, which is historically where you make your money in the television news business. We can presume he's he's still 
working on that. Well, for sure. He absolutely is. I just, there was a time when he was going to experiment with things over the summer of 2022 and make some big decisions in the fall of 2022. And here we are in the winter of 2023. And this more or less looks like a new coach came into Jeff Zucker's locker room and basically said, here, you you third baseman, you're going to go to first base and you first baseman, you're going to go to right field and you right fielder, you're going to play catcher. This year, we're going to make the playoffs. And I just don't see it. All right, Dylan, thanks for your insight and your reporting. Have a great weekend, man. All right, man, you too. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right. I found that on Etsy. It's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. We're back on The Powers That Be. I'm Ben Landy here with Tina Wynn. Happy Friday, Tina. Happy Friday to you too. So let's talk about what's happening with Kevin McCarthy after he traded away everything that wasn't bolted down to secure the final votes he needed to become Speaker of the House in the 15th round, by the way, which required a lot of uncomfortable and potentially destructive promises that he had to make to the far right in exchange for their support. You were actually in the Capitol when a lot of those votes were getting taken. And now that McCarthy is speaker, one of the first things that he has done is he has put up for a vote this rules package that includes some of the parliamentary concessions that have been talked about publicly. But also there's this sort of secret package, these backroom handshake deals that McCarthy has been making with the MAGA caucus that initially opposed him. And from my understanding, we don't really know exactly what those verbal commitments comprise, but we have some sort of sense. What what does that look like? I've been prodding my sources on this, and they've been very secretive about what it is that they did and didn't do. Like, it's not even written down anywhere. You've noticed that the 20 who used to be, like, so rambunctious, so anti-McCarthy, so locked down in their opposition, right now they're just playing really quiet because they don't want to ruin any sort of relationship that they might have with Kevin. I guess a good way to see exactly what concessions they got from Kevin is hearing from the moderate Republicans, the original 200 and something people who voted for Kevin and hearing what they're mad about. So like 
Dan Crenshaw, Mr. Eyepatch Texan guy who's always been very critical of Trumpism. He was supposed to head a committee and then all of a sudden he was kicked out and the committee was given to someone else on the 20. And he obviously flipped because that was his seat that was promised. Tony Gonzalez, who's a another Republican who was pissed off that he didn't have a chance to look at the rules committee. He was like, nope, I don't know what's going on here. You're not telling us what's going on here. I'm not voting for it. I think what's happening, though, is that like the 20 are still waiting for Kevin to hold up his end of the deal. And we don't know what that is yet. And they don't want us to know what that is yet, because the moment you do, you sure to start getting like all of these donors and political figures start like applying individual pressure to each member of the 20 to get them to cave. They don't want to do that. They're playing their cards very close to the chest. Yeah, so we know some of the rules changes that were promised that were in the actual package that were public. Like, for instance, Kevin McCarthy has agreed that a single member of his conference can initiate sort of a no-confidence vote in him to get him to vacate his office um, if there is then a, a majority that supports that. There have also, as you said, there, there are a number of things that are private. We don't know exactly what they are. Is it, you know, Gates getting some kind of sweetheart position on a committee? We will find out, presumably at some point, are those promises actually enforceable or is it simply that the MAGA caucus now has this leverage over McCarthy because it only takes one person to initiate this no confidence vote in him? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Like if he crosses them, they blow up the suicide vest. If they start rabble rousing and opposing McCarthy, he can start pulling the concessions off the table and no one will ever be the wiser. I don't know. This reminds me of those weird Cold War games where like there's like a mutually assured destruction parallel going on here. They need McCarthy to sign all of these deals. McCarthy needs them to not kill him along the way. But he can also withhold any of those deals. And whoever replaces McCarthy is just not going to be amenable to putting together those deals. Like they preferred McCarthy in the long run. There was no one that they could ideally trust But McCarthy was the one person that they were like, all right, we hate you. We hate your guts. We want to like chop off all of your limbs. We want to take every single piece of independent power you have from you. But it's because you're willing to give those up because you want a shiny gavel or whatever. Well, all of this just seems destined to become so messy, not just for all the reasons that you mentioned, but also, you know, look at all of the legislation that the House is going to have to pass in the coming months and year. I mean, raising the debt ceiling, agreeing to new government spending bills. There are definitely a lot of legislative tripwires that are ahead. And McCarthy just barely became speaker and he had to give away so much power to do it. It just seems inevitable at this point that there is going to be a lot of drama over the next couple of months, including from the more moderate wing. I mean, you mentioned like Dan Crenshaw was pissed that the MAGA crew extracted so many concessions from this guy. How do you see that dynamic playing out sort of the left of the Marjorie Taylor Greene caucus? It's hard to say right now because I think they looked at the primary system and saw this wave of MAGA populist primary challengers come out of the woodwork to gun for their seats. In some cases, they actually were successful in primarying out more moderate Republicans. And this time, McCarthy has sworn to not be involved in open primaries where there's a seat that either a moderate or a MAGA person could battle over. 
the implication is that he's not really going to go out of his way to help people who oppose his agenda, which is pretty poisonous. Like, who's going to dive in and help Dan Crenshaw in his reelect if he doesn't fall in line? Who's going to back Tony Gonzalez, if not some sketchy money pack with secret donors that a MAGA person could point to and go, ooh, look at this man being bought by the power brokers and the elites, which is a really potent line, especially among like primary voters. And that's a balance they're going to have to really navigate. And that's a kind of scary one that I would assume Dan Crenshaw is thinking about every day. Well, one of the people who has come out of this clean or, or maybe even with more power than when she went in is Marjorie Taylor Greene. She surprised some people by siding early with McCarthy, backing his bid for the speakership, even though she comes from this sort of very far right, you know, ultra MAGA QAnon world. At the same time, she seems to not have lost too many friends in this process. There are some people on her right flank who are angry, but it seems like she has emerged from this process stronger. Is that, is that your read? Oh, absolutely. One person I spoke to said that she had her own center of gravity that was really similar to Trump. In a lot of ways, she can kind of exist outside of the 20 in that she has her own star power. She has her own ability to raise money. Now that she's built this relationship with Kevin, she's sort of become his MAGA whisperer and has circumvented the need to rely on access to the 20 in order to get what it is that she wants. In the aftermath of this entire voting process, she actually went on a MAGA-aligned talk show, and she started throwing the members of the 20 under the bus and saying, yeah, okay, it's nice that they got all of these concessions into the package, but those deals were already in the package before they started running their mouths. All of these people couldn't go home to their families because they decided to keep them all in Washington. All of the negotiations weren't even about principles. It was about committee assignments. And for her to claim that the group of 20 were acting out of self-interest rather than for ideological reasons is a big statement. It's interesting. During the entire process, she kept calling them immature and childish, like frequently saying that they were throwing temper tantrums, verbiage like that. One of the questions overall that I've had while covering this movement is, is the MAGA movement always going to be about obstructionism and high-profile spats and dramatic displays, or will they figure out a way to push the agenda through by playing nice and by playing by the rules? She might be the first person to test that theory. We'll see what happens when legislation starts getting made and how she votes. Well, it's certainly sort of head spinning to see her positioning herself as the adult in the room. You know, she recently made those comments saying that, sure, I fell down the QAnon rabbit hole, but who hasn't, you know, gotten distracted by something they read on the internet Really fascinating to see this sort of transformation underway. But as you said, Tina, we'll see how this all plays out over the coming months. And I will be here telling all of you beautiful listeners about it every week. All right. We'll see you next week. All right. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. You can visit us at puck.news and on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts.
The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 